You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. What is eucalyptus oil and why do eucalypts make it? Professor Ros Gledo is a professor of plant sciences at Monash University and she's on the board for Eucalypt Australia. She's back on the show in the second episode of our four-part series celebrating National Eucalypt Day on the 23rd of March. Last time Ros was on the show, we spoke about plant biology basics, but in this episode we're talking about the chemistry of eucalypts. Welcome back to the show, Ros. Oh, thanks very much for having me back. Yeah, it's going to be a cracker. So animals, well, some animals at least, are able to eat eucalypt leaves. Can you tell us a little bit about what do animals get from the leaves? So animals get from leaves what they need for life. They get carbohydrate, they get protein, and they get water. And along with that, they get a bunch of other stuff that aren't particularly good for health and digestion like natural toxins and, and phenolics and things like that. But in the end, an animal that's living on leaves is just getting the same out of it as anything, any other type of food. Right. And I guess that some animals have adapted to be able to digest the leaves. Yeah. So eucalypt leaves are tough. We sometimes refer to them as sclerophyllous, which means hard-leaved. And they have lots of uh, lignin or woody tissue in them, and they have lots of phenolics in them, but particularly the lignin and, and all that stuff, mammals can't digest that on their own. And so any animals that's eating leaves has to have a way of fermenting it. So they have bacteria in their gut. So whether it's a koala that's got uh, certain microbiome, you know, components that are going to be, be able to digest those materials, or whether it's a, in the case of an animal getting eating grass, like a, a cow, they have to have the rumen but as humans, we don't have that, so we're not familiar with that ability to digest those plant products. So humans can't digest them, but are they dangerous to human health if we eat a lot of eucalypt leaves? Well, it wouldn't taste that good for starters. But <laughs> very astringent. You, know, you can you can put a couple of leaves, depending on the species. Let's come back to that in your billy tea, and it might add a nice little bit of flavour to it. But no, we can't digest it. And if you had enough of it, these phenolics, these are like the the things that stain water brown. I mean, some of them aren't that bad, you know, like in tea or something, we're used to that. But if you have a lot of those compounds that actually inhibit digestion, so it can actually interfere with your ability to obtain protein from other food sources. Okay, I see. So that's not going to help you if you're out in the bush and you're starving don't eat the eucalypts, find something else to eat. Absolutely. Yeah, wattles can be hit and miss because some of them you can eat and some of them you can't. So the thing with eucalypts, a lot of the flowers you could you could eat, you could soak the flowers in water and get the honey out and get the sugars out and that's quite different from eating the leaves. That's interesting. I didn't know that. And what about tea or do you just steep it in cold water? Yeah, you can. I mean, the tradition is that, you know, you stirred your billy tea with the, with the eucalypt branch and it would give you a bit of bit of flavor. You have to be careful which species it is because some like like sugar gums, eucalyptus cladocalyx, make compounds called cyanogenic glucosides and they release cyanide and they can actually be really toxic. And 
So you really don't want to be munching on those at all. And in fact, mammals generally don't eat those those either. So koalas don't eat the leaves of, of sugar gums because they are in fact toxic to, to mam- very toxic to mammals. Are there any psychoactive effects when animals such as koalas are eating leaves? Like are koalas stoned? No, no, they're not. So that's a really interesting question. So the eucalyptus oils, you know, you have that lovely smell, or if you're Australian, you think it's a lovely smell. I'm not sure everybody (laughs) agrees with that. But, you know, it's it's this really lovely bush smell. And so people have thought, you know, koalas are very still and moving slowly. I mean, they're not always, they can move fast, but they, you know, you often see them just sitting around and people have said they're stoned. But uh, my understanding, I mean, I'm a plant biologist, but interested in this area, they're not stoned. What they are is that they have a low metabolic rate because eucalypt leaves are basically not a very good source of food. I mean, they're, they're hard to digest. They're low in protein. You know, they're, you know, they don't have much nutrient in them. So the animals move slowly to conserve energy. And if you like, a koala is more like a, you know, a giant sloth. Right. And from an outsider's point of view, I can see two benefits to being able to eat eucalypt leaves. One, you can get up high away from danger. And two, they're quite abundant in the Aussie bush. Yeah, I mean, they obviously are suitable for some animals to eat, but they're not a fantastic food source. And so you tend to not have big animals living in, living in trees and, and eating, eating leaves of any tree, actually. So we've got koalas, tree kangaroos, and then, you know, you have the, some of the possums that will eat them. But they're, they're all pretty selective about which leaves they're going to be choosing. They'll be choosing ones that, that have, uh, are a little bit easy to digest and maybe have a different, slightly different uh, chemical profile. Okay. So while we're speaking about the chemical profile, I guess eucalyptus oils can come in a few different types. Can you explain some of those different types to us? Yeah, so the chemical structure, they're clustered in different groups and the, you know, they have all kinds of fancy names and different, different clusters. But there's, you know, mainly there are a group called the, called the terpenes or the monoterpenes and then the sesquiterpenes. And it's just a res- their chemical composition. But, you know, I'm not a complete expert on all of this. But I do know that there are, for example, in the carimbias, like in the lemon scented gums, you get those those monoterpenes are like geraniol. They're like the, what you get in geraniums, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're limonene, like what you get in the uh, the le- citrus family. Whereas in things like the blue mallee or some things like or blue gum and so on, you get more of the a group called a compound called cineol, which is that characteristic smell of the pharmaceutical grade eucalyptus oil. And that's that's a different group altogether. So there is a different groups or you know subsections of the eucalypts have different suites of compounds if you like that are related differently in the way they're synthesized and and even actually within the one plant you think oh well this plant has this particular profile like it has a lot of cineol and it might have a bit of pinene which is like what you get in pine trees but in fact if you go down to the level of the gland we had a student at the University of Melbourne when I was there who did this Drew King and you could just he sampled the oil individual glands and individual glands actually had different combinations of all these different, different oils. And so you looked at that and then you looked at the leaf and one leaf might have a slightly different composition to another. But if you looked at the whole tree, 
whole tree of one species was very similar to a whole tree of of the same species. So individuals were overall were similar, but if you go down to the level of the gland, they could actually be quite different. Are there any reasons that are hypothesized for that happening? I'm sure there are, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really interesting. So I guess the these individual glands, I wonder if there's like if they've been attacked by a certain insect at that spot or something like that, or I wonder what that is. I think it's something to do the way they're synthesized. So if you look at the oil glands, and for people who aren't familiar with that, if you take eucalypts or, in fact, any tree in that family, the Motaceae, and you hold the leaf up to the light and to the sun, sunlight, for example, you see all the little dots in the leaf, and those little dots are all the little oil glands, and uh, they sit between the, you know, the top and the bottom surface of the leaf. And, you know, if, if you really think about it, that's a whole bunch of the leaf which is not doing photosynthesis. You know, it's all full of these little oil glands. So it's got to have some benefit. But if you actually then, if you cut the leaf open and you have a look under the microscope, you can see that there's a little row of cells on the inside of each of those glands. And that seems to be where the synthesis is taking place. It's a little while since I worked on eucalyptus oils. So I'm sure there's some more recent information where they can tell you a bit more about that. Right. How is eucalyptus oil produced by the tree? Like you said the glands, but like is that the end of it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's what we did. With those cells on the in, the cells on the inside of those oil glands have enzymes that can synthesize the oils and then the oils are stored in the glands. What they've found recently is that in fact it's not just eucalyptus oils in those glands, but they can have other compounds in them too like flavonoids which can be act as antioxidants. So there could be other commercial products, for example, that could be extracted from eucalypts. Right. So while we're on that topic, what can eucalyptus oil be used for by humans? Eucalyptus oil is fantastic. I mean, if you grew up in Australia, you know, you wash your woolens in it, you know, it's a fantastic solvent. It can be used in all kinds of different products, usually relating it to being a solvent. It can also be antimicrobial and you can have this pharmaceutical grade. We did a really neat little experiment. It was just very preliminary, but I'd, I'd, I'd read in a, in a paper about some compounds that were very similar to what you get in eucalypts. You know, in the old days, they'd actually used this to control malaria in somewhere like, I don't know, South America or somewhere. I can't remember the details of the origin. So mm. we actually got eucalyptus oil of different concentrations and Put it, added it to cultures of, of uh, the malaria parasite, blood, uh, red blood cells and malaria parasite. We found that it was actually really effective in arresting the growth in a similar way to that drug, what is it, artemisian, you know, that comes from that other plant, that flower. It, you know, acts in a very similar way and, and it halts, halts the growth of malaria. So, I mean, we didn't do any more on that because there are other drugs that are probably much more effective. But, you know, there's a huge amount of potential for these things to have function in, in medicine as well as the function as a solvent and also just smelling really nice. Yeah, I know my wife and I like the smell of eucalyptus oil and I'm not sure which eucalyptus uh, this oil comes from, but we have a little Banksia cone that we've bought and you can sort of fill it up with oil and the Banksia cone diffuses that oil and you can smell it all throughout the house and it's lovely. I've got one too. I mean, what do you give a botanist for Christmas? <laughs> a Banksia cone filled with eucalyptus exactly. oil. Exactly. <laughs> and what does the plant use the oil for? 
Well, there's been a bit of discussion about that and a lot of hypotheses. So some people have thought it was a way of getting light down into those thick leaves. Some people have proposed that it's the increased flammability means that when if a fire goes through the crown, the leaves can burn off very quickly, but the plant doesn't die. There's some evidence for all of those. Others are that they, in fact, deter certain types of herbivores as well. So there's, there's a number of different theories about what they're for, but there's no doubt at all that they are obviously important because they have so much of them. I mean, some things like blue mallee can be 6% of the leaf dry weight can be eucalyptus oil. I mean, that's a, that's a huge investment by the plant. Wow, that is massive. I wonder if there's also an anti-insectal property in it as well or something. Because I, I know that certainly you say most mammals can't eat it, and I'm guessing that there are some exceptions to that rule. But yeah, does that deter herbivores? Oh, well, it definitely has a insect repellent quality, you know, like the citronella candles and that sort of thing. So they, they do actually work as, as insect repellents. But my focus for my research now is not so much on the oils, even though that's so characteristic, but on the, the, the handful or 30 or so eucalypts that produce these toxic cyanide compounds and, and what they're doing and what climate change might do to those and to the nutritional value of, of eucalypt leaves generally. Yeah, would you mind speaking on that a little bit more? So are they all cyanide? Is that the only poison that these plants are making or...? Uh, no, they make they so they they called cyanogenic. That just means they're able to release cyanide. So the cyanide would kill the plant itself, but it's stored in a in a non toxic form. And then, if you like, it's like a cyanide pill that gets cracked open when the when the leaf is crushed or chewed, and the cyanide gets released. So that works as a as a herbivore defense. And it's actually very similar to the one in the in almonds you know, the uh, amygdalin that you get in almonds, it's, it's, it's related to that compound. It's very similar. In fact, it's called prunacin or prunacin because it, it's similar to the one you get in the prunus family. And uh, there are about 30 or 40 eucalypts that we know that make these compounds. And they're obviously, well, not obviously, but they appear to be very important for herbivore defense. But those trees also make, you know, the phenolics, which are digestion inhibitors, and they have eucalyptus oils as well. But they tend to tend to have lower conf- not all, but some of the species like sugar gums tend to be pretty low in the oils and phenolics compared with other eucalypts and have a lot more of these cyanide related compounds. So what will be the effect of climate change on the different toxins and antioxidants in eucalypt leaves? So there's two aspects of climate change as we talk about it, and they're being driven by rising carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So rising carbon dioxide in and of itself has an effect on plants through the process of photosynthesis, and it also has the effect of changing the climate. So first, I'm just going to talk about the changing in the atmosphere. So if you expose plants, which we can do experimentally, to higher concentrations of carbon dioxide, the whole process of growth photosynthesis becomes much more efficient. And so... So you think, oh, okay, you know, you're doubling the amount of carbon dioxide, for example, are you going to get twice the growth? And you don't because what it is is that the, the plants economise and decide if a plant could think, it would be saying, I don't need to do so much photosynthesis and I can make my machinery a bit smaller. Now, the reason this is, I'm telling you all this, is that that machinery that turns carbon dioxide 
into sugars, which is the basis of life, and this is the same in all plants, is, is mostly made of protein. So, you know, when a cow is eating grass, it's, it, its protein is coming from this photosynthetic machinery. And so it's the same with eucalypts. If a, if a, if a, whether it's an insect or a koala is eating eucalypt leaves, the protein is about half that protein is coming from the photosynthetic machinery. Maybe not quite half, but, you know, a substantial proportion. So when you grow the plants at high carbon dioxide, and in fact, we've me- we, you can measure this, the plants just make less of this protein because they can grow and photosynthesize really well with a much smaller bit of machinery. And as a result, you drop the protein in the leaf. Now, the consequence of that for something like eucalypts that already have low leaf protein is really significant. So we often measure, rather than measuring the amount of protein in the leaf, we measure we just measure the amount of nitrogen, just the elemental nitrogen. There's a direct relationship. So let's just say, you know, a really super healthy leaf with grown on lots of nitrogen might, might have like say, you know, three or 4% leaf nitrogen for a eucalypt. When you grow them at, you need to have leaves to support insects that would need to have more than say one to two, probably 2% nitrogen to support animals. And what we find when we grow them at, at high carbon dioxide is that it can drop below that. So our predictions that animals will need to consume more leaves to gain the same amount of protein. And so that's what they do. They'll eat more leaves. And we've done some studies on this. They make more leaves. It's called compensatory feeding to make up for the lower protein. The downside is, of course, they're in eating a lot more oils. They're eating a lot more phenolics. And if they're the cyanide-containing trees, they're eating a lot more cyanide. So the balance between the protein decreasing and the toxins increasing would mean that our predictions from, we did these studies more than 20 years ago, would say that by 2050, eucalypt leaves will be unable to support koalas. And they're already at risk, aren't they? Yeah. So, so what, I mean, a practical side of that, I mean, obviously better not to keep increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But the other thing is to, you can choose trees that are, do tend to have more protein. And so maybe you could make sure you put those in your plantations or, or something to try in, in encourage growth of those things that would be suitable for feeding. You know, but if you lose your insects, for example, and we've got evidence too that the insects also will be affected and won't be able to survive or you'll have less insects, then of course you've got less birds that are eating the insects and so on. So you're looking at really big ecosystem change. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I guess that sounds like we're contradicting ourselves when we say that there are still insects that feed on eucalypts, even though the eucalypts are uh, releasing oils that are repelling insects, but actually nature is an arms race. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of specialists, and and I'm not. I think with the oils, you know, it's where they get their volatile side of things. They're a bit more insect repellent. I'm not sure that they actually repel insects from the tree. I think it's when we extract it or when the insects sort of eating it. And and I really don't know enough about that. And there'll be some entomologists listening to this, just rolling their eyes and saying, <laughs> "Roz, you really can't say that." So. To those of you out there, I apologise, but uh, at least we're making it making a start on on trying to understand it. Now, the, so that's one side, and there's this balance between protein and toxins changes with with as you increase the atmospheric carbon dioxide. The other side is that you get change your climate, and so for example, under more droughted conditions, severe drought, the plants 
proportionally have more of these digestion inhibiting phenolics than you have under well watered conditions. And that's so you also, so if you had high carbon dioxide and drought, then you would be looking at a pretty bad combination for the animals that eat, eat the plants. Mm. Obviously, there's a lot more digestion that has to happen and, and you're getting less energy out of every meal. So, yeah, you're spending more time eating and there's a lot less time doing other things. So it's not, there's a lot of consequences to that. Yeah. So we're coming up to National Eucalypt Day on the 23rd of March. What do you reckon people can do to get involved in National Eucalypt Day? Yeah, so National Eucalypt Day is 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 great a great thing. It's sponsored by or introduced by Eucalypt Australia. And our, I'm on the board of Eucalypt Australia and the organisation is really looking to have a public inspired by and appreciative of eucalypts. And it's set up to, to do that. And National Eucalypt Day, if you go to the Eucalypt Australia website, there's a little tab that says National Eucalypt Day. And if you look that, you'll see how you can either host an event, you can vote for your favourite eucalypt, eucalypt of the year, um, and you can find out about some of the other things that we do, like the medal we give to someone who has, in fact, you know, increased the appreciation and understanding of, of eucalypts. Yeah, and while we're talking about Eucalypt Australia, there's also the Dahl Fellowship as well, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, the Dahl Fellowships only started a couple of years ago. So uh, what they do, they're, I guess, modelled on the old Churchill Fellowships in that you it's, people can have a grant to just do something that uh, promotes eucalypts. And so we usually have two fellows a year. They, they have a, a stipend. And at some people have, who have been awarded these have worked in some kind of, you know, developing a book or they've done field guides or they've used, they've worked, they do art. Maybe they use eucalyptus tannins to, t- to dye fabrics. So it's really about appreciating the whole aspect of eucalypts there might be yeah just all kinds of different things and they're really really a fabulous thing and if you just want to go head to the website again for eucalypt australia not eucalyptus australia eucalypt australia because <laughs> we want to cover all those things that technically called eucalyptus anymore but they're in this eucalypt group there's just a whole stack of information there about some of the really just amazing things people have done over the last few years on these dial fellowships Ros, is the reason why we don't call them eucalyptus trees anymore because the eucalyptus genus is only one out of the three genera yeah that's right so eucalyptus i mean there were always were other genera like angophora and and a couple of minor minor ones but most of the things we looked at were eucalyptus but that has been quite definitively broken into another group of the bloodwoods which I can't remember how many there are but that's like the carimbias so that would be like your red flowering gums and your lemon scenteds and spotted gums are all in the carimbia so it's a different genus it's just you know how close do you want to be it's like you know they're not they're, they're definitely very very close cousins so we use the word eucalypt to be the informal name that covers, you know, the Angophoras, the Carimbias and the eucalyptus. Mm. So, Ros, where can people go to learn more about the chemistry and biology of eucalypts? Yeah, so one of the things I was thinking about that and where is the best place to go, honestly, if you want to know about eucalyptus oil, just go to Wikipedia. There's a fantastic entry there. I mean, I just looked it up. It's great. and. <laughs> 
you know, there's all these nerds out there keeping Wikipedia accurate. And and I just had a quick look at it. And really, you just really couldn't <laughs> go past that just as your first entry point. And then there's references at the end for things that you can go to. Yeah, Wikipedia gets a bad rap. I love Wikipedia. And especially, yeah, those little reference notes that you can follow in down the rabbit hole. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? There's two things. One is, I think we have this fantastic resource in Eucalypts in Australia. And I think National Eucalypt Day is just a fantastic way of celebrating that. So whether it's doing, you know, forest bathing, as they call it, or whether you just want to enjoy the oil or the look or the art, or you're actually interested in the biology of those things, that's just a great day to celebrate. So I think that's, that's really nice. The thing that really concerns me at the moment is that with climate change, we're looking at where, the, as climate changes, where plants, trees currently grow may not be the right place for them to be in 20, 50 or 100 years' time, and yet we've got trees that are hundreds of years old. So we need to really have a conversation about how we do land management, how we do conservation. If we're doing revegetation, Traditionally, what we've always done is revegetated with seed off plants that currently live in that environment. Is that what we should be doing in the future? Or should we be taking seed from trees or provenance, as we call them, little sort of subsections of the species from, from, up the, from up the road, which, for example, more drought tolerant or better able to deal with the, the new conditions? And we really need to have a conversation about what it means to have conservation to make sure that we can maintain this absolutely brilliant diversity of trees and also, you know, they're also hugely economically important. Oh, Roz, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, share it around with your friends and colleagues and follow the Plants Grow Here podcast for more weekly content just like it. Head to the Eucalypt Australia website or check out the show notes to learn more about the organisation, view upcoming events and see more resources. Next Sunday we'll be releasing our third episode in the four-part Eucalypt series all about Eucalypt myth-busting with Dean Nicole.